Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel, I am one of the pastors here at Res City, and we are doing a series this summer through the book of Jeremiah, we're calling it Build and Plant, and the big idea is uh, spending some time in the book of Jeremiah um, and kind of looking at this crisis that is going on in the life of the nation Judah, it's an offshoot of, of Israel that had developed at the time, and kind of what God is saying through the prophet Jeremiah to them to sort of challenge them to, as God says, uproot and tear down um, so that he can build and plant something new. And we're asking, like, what is it that God is saying to us through uh, this prophet now so that God can do the same things? Uproot and tear down uh, certain things that might be kind of standing in the way from us following him, but then also building and planting uh, through Jesus in our lives. So, Anyway, uh, thanks for being here, uh, whether it's your first time joining us, maybe you're here in person or online, we're thankful to have you here uh, worshiping with us this Sunday morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Lord, we thank you that you, um, you do not just uh, let, our, uh, let, let things in our lives run amok, Lord. You do, you do come, you do speak to us through your word, through um, each other, through worship, through your spirit, God, whatever uh, means you use so that you can uproot and tear down, but all for the purpose of building and planting in our lives. I pray that you would do that in our lives today through your word. Um, you do it in our lives through our time gathered here together, through the worship, through our, uh, our, the communion later today, all of it, Lord. We just ask you to be present in it, in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Julie, my wife, likes to tease me sometimes because I don't really read fiction. I have read very little fiction in a decade plus. So it's just not something I'm really all that interested in. And she likes to come up with all these theories as to why it's the case. We were literally even talking about this morning. Um, and I don't know. I don't actually know what the reason is. Uh, she knows me pretty well. So one of those theories is probably right. Um, but I do know what I do love to read and get into are history books. I just really enjoy listening to like books on Audible, audiobooks about history. Um, it's, was my, history was my favorite subject in school. Um, I just think it puts so much perspective on our own moment. We kind of look back at, at history and ask, like, what bearing might this have on us today? And there's lots of different um, books that I've read. Like, some, some of my favorites are, are books on Churchill. I'm listening to one called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich right now. Uh, there's a great book on Lincoln. I even read one recently. It was like a history of of, of Iranian and American uh, diplomatic relations, which was, I just found so fascinating. I know, though, the thing is, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. Like, I would guess a lot of you in the room would be put to sleep by some of these books. Literally, Julie has almost fallen asleep. We were driving to Door County a few weeks ago, and she was doing some work on her phone, and she's like, you can just throw on whatever. So I threw on one of these books, and she was like, oh my gosh, you need to stop. I'm going to fall asleep. I'm not going to be able to do any of this work. <laughs> um, okay, but for me, and, and maybe this is why I gravitate towards this, or, or for me, like, the story part of it is, is so great, is because it is a story. Like, for me, whatever reason, this, the story that is being told in a lot of these, these books really just draws me in, even more than, than fiction books, apparently, okay? Because a good, a good biographer is taking all of this history, all this information, all this data that they're collecting, and they're framing it for you in a story, 
kind of in a setting that kind of uh, p- paints everything within a sort of certain context. Um, and, and kind of you can understand how everything comes together to tell this really fascinating story. And that's what really uh, draws me in. And I think a, a good biography is in-depth. It gives you a sense of the whole situation. It doesn't kind of just present what's going on as if, you know, th- this came out of thin air. It lets you know that what is happening and whatever great event or, or infamous, notorious event or person that's being talked about in this, like, it doesn't just come out of thin air, right? Most major historical events and people are, are products of things that have been uh, swirling, they've been festering, they've been just kind of waiting to be ignited, and then they kind of explode at the right moment. But they wouldn't have ever done that without everything that had come before it. They have straight lines to the past, and in order to really understand them well, I think we need to look back in order to look forward and ask like, what the relevance for us might be from these history books. Now, as we kind of uh, come to the book of Jeremiah, and we're looking at this crisis that's going on in Judah, in the present time, in Jeremiah's present as he writes, I think there's a straight line back to the past that's important for us to kind of understand as we are reading a lot of this, okay? And so in order for us to find application, I think we do need to understand the story that Judah is living in. And when we do look back on that, the, the concept of holiness is what kind of looms large and really helps, I think, explain this crisis that is going on in, in Judah at the time. So today what I want to talk about is why holiness matters. I want to talk about, uh, you know, I want us to dig, up, dig into this a little bit more to kind of understand how this sort of frames everything going on in Judah at the time, but also why it may, uh, matters for us here, why it's relevant for us in the present. Because I think for us, in order to avoid Judah's mistakes, we have to seek out holiness. It's just something we must do. And that means understanding it and taking it really seriously. So today, like I said, what I want to do is we're not going to really spend that much time in Jeremiah. We're actually going to look back and kind of ask how has what has been coming before setting up the the crisis of a lack of holiness in the life of Judah and what it means for us today. Now, when we, you know, we spend time around other Christians, like we, we pick up words and we kind of add them into our Christian vernacular, right? It's just kind of like anytime you join a group of people, you, you, know, you, you do that. I think there's, there's a lot of words we pick up in, in conversation with other Christians that we don't always know the meaning to, or we might pick it up from context, but it's never been like explained to us very well. And I think holiness is one of those words. It's a word that you know you use, we use a lot. We're gonna find it in a lot of worship songs, probably. We're gonna read it when we open our Bibles up, but it's not actually a word we probably have, you know, dug into to understand like what does this actually mean? Right? And so we can maybe kind of come up with some ideas of what it means. But I think when we really dig into what the concept of holiness looks like in scripture, it might be a little bit different than we might think. And so um, you know, we're going to talk about that today. We're going to use an actual story of God's holiness to kind of help explain to us uh, what it means. The word holy is not used much in Jeremiah, but I really think when you look at the story, it's clear, like this is hovering in the background, okay? It's very much behind what's going on here. And, and the reason it matters is because Israel, or Judah at this time as they're called, has forgotten their call to be holy. They have forgotten what it means for God to be holy, 
and we'll talk about why this matters, they have forgotten what it means for them to now be holy in God's midst as well. Okay? We get a sense for this when we kind of compare Judah to Israel when they first sort of really come into this uh, big encounter with God where their, their relationship, which is called a covenant, is set up with God and kind of uh, begins their former relationship, that, which is the thing that is being broken in the book of Ju- uh, Jeremiah that has been talked about so much. So here, here's the scene. I want to take you back to the Exodus, this sort of incredibly important moment in the history of Israel and one of the most important moments in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. So Israel has been in the wilderness after leaving Egypt. They've been set free by God. And they come to a mountain, which will be later become to be known as Mount Sinai, where God's presence is going to come and rest with them, and they're going to camp out. They spend a lot of time there. And God and Moses, who's Israel's leader at the time, they go up to the top of this mountain, and they kind of hammer some things out. They kind of set some parameters. They kind of, uh, you know, God kind of tells uh, Moses what to expect and tell the people uh, about what's going to happen, and they're going to make this arrangement of this covenant that's going to last between Israel and God. Now, only Moses can go up to the top of the mountain. I'm going to find out why that's a little bit important, you know, important here in a second. Um, but God's arrival... Uh, to come with the, the to come to this people, like the picture of it. I think you know we, we can we can kind of understand like God's going to come rest with them. But I want us to really dig into the picture because it's kind of stunning when we really kind of get a sense for what's going on here and what it says about God. Because it's clear in this sort of first formal encounter between Israel and God, it's clear that God wants to leave a lasting impression on this people. Something that's not going to just you know, sit with the people who are there, but it's going to kind of be carried out throughout the generations of children that are going to come from this, okay? We get a sense for God's total otherness and utter awesomeness as God. And, and to measure that, sometimes it can be hard to kind of measure things independently without a frame of reference, Okay, so, like, I, for example, I was at uh, the, uh, the, the Twins game last night, and, you know, depending on where you sit in the stadium, when a ball gets hit off the bat, you can't really tell, like, how hard it's coming off the bat, right? So, like, sometimes you'll see a ball gets hit, you hear a whole section of the stadium start to cheer, because they think, it's a home run, and then it just kind of stops being a home run, and, and, like, it's just an easy, lazy pop fly, all right? So, you can't always tell, like, the magnitude of the hit off the bat, the way to really do it is to actually watch the outfielders for the, for the team that's in the field. If they look concerned and they're like, you see them running like someone's chasing them, okay, you know the, the ball's been hit pretty hard. But if they're just kind of like, you know, casually standing there, you know, oh, it looked to me from my perspective like the ball was hit really hard, like there was a lot of magnitude to this. But reality, it, it wasn't. And you can tell by the reaction of the people who are there. That's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Um, we get a sense for the magnitude of God's holiness when we look at the precautions that the people are supposed to take in his arrival. Okay, we see their response to it, just like an outfielder like in a dead sprint towards the wall because they know this ball, the magnitude of this hit, is pretty massive. Okay? So they are intense, these precautions that Israel is supposed to take. And they might seem alien over, top, over the top to us, right? Especially because I think we sometimes can have a watered-down understanding of holiness. But when we really sort of put ourselves in the shoes of Israel and ask ourselves, what is being communicated to us about God by their response, it really tells us the magnitude 
of what we're going to call the holiness of God in this moment. So let me read some of this to you. It comes from Exodus 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Uh, oh, can, we, uh, can you move the slide forward, please, for me? There we go. Uh, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning after, uh, or the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke uh, from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. So at this point, you know, God is going to deliver to Moses a, this covenant law. Now, kind of some of the importance of this law is it was going to give ongoing parameters for Israel for how they could be in close relationship with this type of God. Okay, so it's kind of a paradox that's being created by this covenant. It's going to give uh, parameters to this people so that they can live in close proximity to this God, right? But this God that's coming, you know, this law is supposed to remind us like how other and how different and how radically holy he is. And for the people to be in his midst because of that great gap is, uh, you know, it's a great thing. There has to be a lot of parameters around it. Now, I, I don't normally like to read longer quotations and sermons, but there's this one from a commentary by a guy named Walter Brueggemann that kind of, ex, you know, unpacks this image that is so, I think, insightful. And as I read it, I actually am going to show you a picture to kind of give you a sense, again, for the, the picture of this cloud coming down and what the people are seeing. This is a picture from downtown Minneapolis of like a storm that happened a few weeks ago, and I thought it just was like really helpful. I think it kind of looks like what we would expect um, happened uh, on this mountain for the people that were there. What an arrival it is beyond anything Israel has ever experienced. There has been preparation, but the coming seems to override and disregard it. The narrative strains to find um, language to portray the disruptive, cataclysmic upheaval caused by the entry of God's own holiness. The coming of the Holy One is inutterable. Yahweh is an alien presence, a foreboding, threatening, and destabilizing otherness. The narrator wants to take us up in awe and terror in the presence of the Holy One who is beyond all portrayal. Yahweh warns Moses about the danger. The warning may be pictured in three concentric circles. First, the whole of the mountain is kept or made holy. 
Second, the people are warned not to look. It is not denied that God has a visible form. To see that form, however, is enormously dangerous. Third, even the priests, the ones who confidently operate in the zone of God's holiness, are warned to be careful. They must not be complacent or comfortable in the presence of this God. Twice, we read it in one of the sections that I read here for you, twice the term break out is used as though Yahweh is a contained poison, almost substantive, that will break out to contaminate, destroy, and kill. One is struck in by the tumbling out of words and phrases in these verses without a coherent picture or presentation. As the speech is untamed, so the God who comes in Israel is untamed and on the loose. Okay, so this, this is the introduction that Israel gets, the sort of last, supposed to last in their national memory about who the God that they're in relation with is. Okay, it is not supposed to be something that they take lightly. This is a holy God, and as we're going to see, it's his desire to make Israel holy as well. So based on all this, how would we define holiness? How would we understand this concept, right? Like I said, it's kind of a Christian-y word. It gets applied to things that aren't totally, you know, maybe at the center of the target. And so we sometimes need to pause and ask ourselves, like, is our understanding of holiness really, you know, fitting with the biblical description of it? Now, we might think of holiness as like a, a certain moral perfection, right? Maybe an absence of moral blemish, right? Someone is holier than thou, Right? That's a, a, a phrase we like to throw around. That, that person is extra holy because you know, they didn't do this thing. They don't do that thing. You know, they kind of view themselves as very righteous. We kind of almost you know, see it as like a slur in some ways today, right? To describe someone who is you know, just maybe pretentious and thinks they're better than everyone else, right? Okay, that's, you know, I don't think that's totally right. I mean, there is some, an aspect to that for sure, but holiness is just simply God's nature, Right? Like it's simply the fact that God is so alien or other, a sort of ter- you know, somewhat terrifying quality of uniqueness and set apartness of, of who God is. Okay? Israel couldn't even like set foot on the mountain, like on the foot of the mountain. They couldn't even get close to the edge of it. That's how like holy this was. And only Moses um, could walk up to the top of the mountain. That's how like that's how big a deal this is. So to really understand holiness, we have to see that it goes together with like uniqueness and, and set-apartness. I think that's the, the, the way in or like the, like the doorway into understanding holiness fully. Now, I, I want to give a little analogy here. I think this is really helpful to kind of make sense of what we just read. And so I didn't make this up. I, I took it from uh, the Bible Project guys, if you've, if, if you've heard of them. They have some really, really good kind of, you know, unpacking of the Bible. And they compare holiness to the sun, the sun in our solar system is unique. Okay? There's nothing like the sun in our solar system. Everything else revolves around it. Everything else is warmed by it. Right? The, the sun is set in a unique place within the solar system. Its role, uh, what it accomplishes, all of it is totally unique. Nothing else is like it within our solar system. And because of that, because it has the power to cause us to circle around it and to warm uh, up the, the different planets within it, you, there's only certain degrees with which you can get to get close to the sun, right? If you 
get too close to this sun, this thing that's so other than us that it can do what it does for the solar system, like, it means annihilation for you. Like, you, you can't get close enough to the sun uh, without that having, without, you know, being burned to a crisp. That's how other and different the sun is for us. To come, you know, the sun is so radically other, okay, that we have to take special precautions with it. Now, I assume you kind of noticed the parallel with, with that picture of holiness like the sun and then what we just read in Exodus 19 there, right? God is the sustainer uh, of life. The, the, all of creation comes from him. It revolves around him. All life on the earth comes from this creator God. He stands in a unique, set-apart way in relation to the creation that he has made. And that difference is so great that Israel could only get so close to him without being annihilated by that greatness, right? Compared to the greatness of God, we, are, uh, we need parameters in order to keep us safe. Our, our difference to God, which includes our sin, kind of creates that gap. Like I said, now, this covenant that uh, God gives to Israel through Moses sets up parameters, it sets up disciplines, mechanisms that are all going to allow Israel to be in close uh, uh, proximity to this God and, like I said, we'll talk about this here in a second, and to make them holy in the process. Now, Jeremiah kind of reflecting back on this moment, on the beginning of Israel's relationship with God, says this about them. This is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. He's talking about these Exodus moments here right now, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Okay, so by being in relationship, by being in proximity to this God, Israel herself was being made holy by association with this God. They were being made set apart. They're being made unique uh, throughout the whole world. But somewhere in there, somewhere between when Jeremiah writes and what we're talking about here uh, in the Exodus, Israel had started to forget all this. They had started to uh, uh, quit pursuing holiness. They had forgotten who God was, and as a result, they had forgot who they were. Okay, I think those two things go together. Understanding who God is gives us an identity as well. Understanding that God is holy gives us the identity of being holy. And when we forget who God is, we will no longer be set apart. We will no longer be holy like he is. Okay? So that's our big takeaway here. Okay? God's people need to take his holiness seriously because it's who God is and it gives us identity. Listen, it's true, okay? Don't hear me, anything I'm saying today, you know, come across to you to me saying, like, God is not uh, loving. He is not approachable. He is not good and merciful, desiring to draw us into relationship with him, full of grace and forgiveness and love, okay? Full stop. God embodies all these things, okay? What I'm saying here is not in contradiction to that at all. But we can't tame God when we think of him that way. We can't tame his holiness by thinking he is, you know, a, a certain kind of, of friendly uh, or, or, or welcoming presence and forget that he's also holy, he's also other, he's also set apart, he's also in a unique relation to us and the rest of creation. And that is important, that has weight to it that we have to acknowledge as we think about what it means for us to be in relationship with him. We can't dilute God's holiness by treating him casually like Judah had done. 
And worse yet, moving on to the second part of this, but forgetting our own identity, okay? Israel was holy to the Lord, Jeremiah said. God's holiness defined them as well. People who belong to this God, who are in relation to him, must also be set apart, unique. And unlike the unholy, the, un, you know, the world that is not in this relation with this God around them, it has to live in a, in a space that is also set apart and unique. If you wanted to get close to the sun, okay, imagine we could. Imagine we had some technology that allowed us to do it, right? We developed these special sun suits that would let you walk on the sun, okay? You would have to wear that special suit in order to do it. You couldn't dress up like you were going to Mars, you couldn't dress up, you know, you couldn't wear shorts and a t-shirt like you were going to some hot, you know, beach here, uh, you know, here, right? That's not the way you would uh, address yourself in order to go to the sun. You'd have to prepare yourself in a very unique and set apart and special way in order to approach the sun. The same is true for us. In order to be close to God, we have to be prepared for it. We have to be prepared differently. We have to look different than people who are living on Mars or going to a nice, uh, you know, hot day on the beach. And Judah was not living like this God that we talked about in Exodus 19 was among them. They were not living like the sun was nearby. They were gearing up to live on Mars. They wanted to look like all the nations around them who were living on Mars, living on Saturn, living on Pluto, right? That was more attractive to them than preparing themselves to live like people who were in close relationship to the sun. They were going about their business casually, and they were about to be catastrophically burned by that. This is what we've been talking about throughout this whole series, the kind of the judgment that's hanging over the book that God is asking them to turn themselves from, and they refused to do. That was gonna, they were going to get burned by the sun. God was warning them to not let themselves get burned, to remember who they were supposed to be in relationship to this holy God. They were supposed to be holy because of the God that they uh, were in relationship with. And the same is true for us, okay? Remember I said that God talked about how being in relationship to them would make them holy. This is from the same passage that we were reading earlier, Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel's identity as a holy nation would come from being in relationship with a holy God, So the Apostle Peter, writing uh, much later to a Christian audience, echoes that same language in what he says to the church that he's writing to, okay? 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. God had prepared Israel for this in Exodus 19. That's the point of the covenant. And Peter, writing many years later, says that, and, and to unpack this, that Jesus has made a way for us to also approach God, to be holy, okay? Jesus, who is God's representative, God's sacrifice, God's temple, takes us. We were not a people. He has shown us mercy. He has made us God's special possession, set apart from the world around us, by putting on flesh, dying for us, being raised again, and inviting us to follow him. Okay? You can think of it like this. Remember I said only Moses go up to the top of the mountain, right? Jesus has made a way for us to also go to the top of the mountain. 
Jesus has made a way. And so now we're all like Moses. Okay, this is what it means to follow Jesus, to be in Christ, to be made new by him, is to be like Moses. We don't need to fear God's holiness swallowing us up because we are impure or something. Jesus has made a way for us to also climb the mountain. But, okay, but we can't just treat this as some kind of like get out of jail free card and then pretend that God's holiness doesn't matter anymore. Okay, God's holiness continues to have enduring weight and significance in our lives as we now live in a relationship of proximity to this holy God. His calling for us is to be set apart, to be unique, and I would say delightfully different than the world around us on a regular basis, a breath of fresh air, you know, spreading God's holiness to the world around us. Not to make ourselves stale by doing our best to look like the unholy world that's around us. And I think, to be honest, like, we can be really good at that. It's easy for us to forget God's holiness. It's easy for us to act like Judah, forget who God is and how we go about our daily lives. Okay? We have to seek out the qualities of God and through being brought near by Jesus and empowered by his Holy Spirit to emulate them. Okay? To, to live like the mountain is everywhere that we go. To take that really seriously. Now, Jeremiah calls Judah out for not living this way, for not living set apart, okay? So here's an example uh, from Jeremiah 8, 10. From the least to the greatest, their lives, the people of Judah, are ruled by greed. Here's an example of a way they were not living like they were in proximity to this holy God. Yes, even my prophets and priests are like that. They are frauds. The thing about greed is we know it's everywhere, right? We know greed is like a normal way that People have been living their lives constantly. We can see it in, uh, you know, the, the rich, you know, the rich and famous. Oftentimes, we can see it in the, a lot of the systems that we might be a part of. It, it, it's not shocking. It's not disputed that this is a normal feature of the world, right? It's a problem. It's but it's kind of one we all learn to live with, right? Here's the problem. Here's the shocking thing: that God's people would also live lives ruled by greed. God doesn't need to hoard, okay? A whole, the holy God, the one who the universe revolves around, he doesn't need to be greedy because he has all things. And so if we're living in proximity to him, we don't need to worry about hoarding things either, right? We have access to the sun, the thing that powers the rest of the universe. We don't, don't need to be greedy, but we find ourselves often doing that in how we Treat, you know, we act with our own money and how we maybe sometimes take part in systems of greed. Maybe we're good at trying to cut it out of our own lives, but, you know, the, the work that we put ourselves towards, we can sometimes see a culture of greed. Do we capitulate to that? Do we give ourselves into that? Do we say it's not a big deal that that's a part of our normal lives? If that's true, then we're uh, guilty of uh, falling into this trap of unholiness, the things that God is calling us to remove because they're not part of our holy identity. But holiness isn't just about removing things from our lives, about letting things go, right? Like, you know, it's not like we're holding something in our hand and God is saying, I just want you to let that go. That's holiness. Holiness is letting go of things so that we can use that open hand to grab a hold of other things, things that God calls us to seek out because they're part of his nature. Okay, Rich Villadas, he's a, he's a pastor in New York, says, in our minds, holiness is usually about what we abstain from. But Jesus saw holiness as what you give yourself to, namely justice, mercy, compassion, love, 
and hospitality. In the end, the holiest people are the ones who love well. So for us to be holy means not just to let go of certain things, but to chase after the qualities of God, the things that Jesus shows us and calls us to also chase after. Judah wasn't chasing after these things, but now the ball's in our court. As we read the book of Judah, the ball's in our court. If we kind of wrap up everything we've been talking about here so far, the question for us is this. Do we care enough about the holiness that Jesus gives us? Is this something that we take seriously? Okay, It is true, right? And nothing we do is going to make this untrue. Jesus has made a way for us to go up the mountain like Moses, to cut through the storm clouds of God's holiness, to go there unscathed without fear of being annihilated, but actually brought there in love close to this God. This is good news. We don't need to fear the holiness of God. We can read Exodus 19. It's a freaky thing to read. I'm not going to lie, okay? But we don't have to read that in fear because of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, this is exciting news. This is, this is a big deal. And we understand, I think, more and more clearly, the more and more we understand the story of what's going on here, the history of Israel and God. Okay? But we have to live appropriately if we're going to be on that mountain, if we're going to be on, you know, near the sun, as near as the sun that Jesus brings us, we have to live appropriately. Okay? Here's a, a small kind of silly example, but I think it kind of illustrates the point, right? Imagine you, you've been working from home for the last few years and you've gotten, you know, really comfortable in sort of just doing work from home, you know, wearing pajamas, going to the bathroom with the door open in your house, like all this kind of stuff, right? That's a part of working from home. But you're really good at your job. So your, you know, your boss tells you, hey, good news. The CEO wants you to work in the office. You want to, your office can be right next to the CEOs. Okay? You're going to be in proximity every single day with the boss. This is pretty cool. You, know, you work at a big Fortune 500 company. Congratulations to you. So you go to work, okay, and you keep wearing your pajamas. You keep going to the bathroom with the door open. Right? You're just kind of hanging out in the office just like you're back at home again. You got your cat with you, whatever it is, right? We all agree that would probably not fly. That would not be appropriate for the new sort of status that you've attained through kind of being given this job, being in close proximity to this important person at the highest level of your company, right? That wouldn't work. We can't treat Jesus bringing us to the top of the mountain like that either. I think it's easy for us to do. I think we need to ask ourselves, how am I living? How am I bringing the, the outside the mountain? How am I bringing that to the top of the mountain? Jesus has brought us up there, but we bring stuff into that all the time that is not fitting with our status of being people who are in proximity to him. Okay, we forget who God is and we forget who our, what our identity is as well as people who are made holy by Jesus. We can't live with that amnesia, you guys. We can't try to bring Mars to the sun. We can't brush shoulders with the CEO wearing pajamas. Okay, it's not, it's not fitting. Jesus didn't die for us to think this holiness that he was dying to bridge the gap of was inconsequential. He died so we could be transformed by an encounter with the holy God that is available to us, that is something we live in a regular, uh, a regular way because of Jesus, but I would say, and I speak for myself here, we don't take this as seriously as we should. 
we're going to go in, into a time of worship now, um, and we're going to be taking some communion as we do, as we do that. Um, communion is, a, is the part of the service where we just really reflect on what Jesus has done for us. I just talked about it. Jesus died for us in order to bring us to the top of the mountain. When we take communion, we're reflecting on that in a way that is sort of tangible, that reminds us of what it looked like for God to make it so we could approach his radical otherness without being burned by it. Communion is a place where we remember what it took for him to do that. I invite you all uh, to take communion, to reflect on that as we also enter a time of worship. Um, We have communion uh, right up here. Please come and grab it at any point over the course of the next three songs. Um, we have a, a loaf of bread. We'd love for you to rip a piece off of and grab a cup. But if for COVID reasons that makes you feel uncomfortable, totally understand. We also have uh, a box of uh, just a cups you could grab with everything that you want within that. Um, we also will have someone in the back who will be willing to pray for you. If there's anything at all that you would like prayer for, uh, we have uh, people every Sunday who, are, uh, who are, would love to spend time praying for you in the midst of that. But let me pray and then we'll enter into that, into that time here. God, we thank you that you are other, you are holy, you are radically beyond us, God. That is incredible news to hear, God, because we need that. We, we, we live in a world that, that, that needs something other than it, that powers it, that the, it revolves around God. We're thankful that that's who you are, but not just that that's who you are, um, but that you invite us into that. You in, take us to the top of the mountain, God, and you make us holy through your son, Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to take that seriously, to live as if that's the case in our day-to-day lives, so we can reflect your holiness to the world around us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.